The children are dismissed to junior church at this time. Children are dismissed to junior church. I'm going to be going to Galatians chapter 4 here in just a moment. So if you want to begin to take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 4, while I set up the passage here, I invite you to do so. It was a wonderful hymn we just sang, just sung. I'll go with it, whichever. It's a wonderful hymn. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And can we sing that out with great volume to the Lord this morning? Do we believe that? To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. I mean, does that mean something to us? You know, I think sometimes we get so distracted in worship, we miss worship. You know, we just go through the motions. I hope that we can ask God to eliminate those distractions so that we can just sing with volume, with gusto, to God be the glory. Or whatever song we're singing. Hope we can just sing out our heart to the Lord. Sing out in great volume. Because sometimes I think we get louder at other festivities, whether it's some secular concert or a football game or basketball game or something else, with our cheers for that than we do for God on Sunday morning. Which may show how much our salvation means to us. I'd like to pray as I begin the passage. Just pray. Lord God, as we are about to engage your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would engage us in our hearts and minds and in our inner spirit and in our soul. We ask, Lord God, that you would convict us of anything we need to repent of this morning and the Holy Spirit would get through to us. We ask once again that your word does not come back void. Lord God, anything that I have to say that may or may not, that may not be from you, I pray it just dissipates in the wind. But anything from you and from your word, I pray it goes right to the spiritual inner being of each person here today. And each person who listens later online or reads the message. Lord God, if I have anything to share that is not in my manuscript, but maybe you want to give me something in addition to it, may that happen. May we all be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Myself and those listening, and those out in the narthex as well, where it also plays, as well as a nursery. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is not a religion. We're not called to be religious. A religion is what you do to earn your way to heaven. Can we do anything to earn our way to heaven? No, absolutely nothing. Religion is what you do to earn your way to heaven. Christianity is what Jesus has done, completed, to pay our way to heaven. Jesus has given us his grace when he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That's Christianity. It's by grace. Greg Steer, evangelism is about his life. Uh, Greg Steer is a speaker and leader of a group called Dare to Share. It's a ministry to young people, a ministry to teenagers. It's for high schoolers especially, but they let middle schoolers attend as well. And they have various conferences across the country. I've led youth groups there. He also speaks to youth workers all over the country and the world and has uh, spoken at Promise Keepers. And as I already said, evangelism is, is his life. He planted a church and, which grew explosively. And then after the Columbine school shooting, he thought he needed to focus on on. Uh, Dare to share ministries for young people, for teenagers, totally. And so he resigned from his church and focused solely on dare to share ministries. 
Well, once he was studying at a restaurant, he had his Bibles and he had his commentaries and his Bible dictionaries, just a stack of books, just a stack of books. And he goes to pay, and this guy, because he's studying for a sermon, so they're all Bible books, you know. And this guy says to him, you're not one of those religious people, are you? And Greg Steer responds, wants to build a bridge. He says, oh, no, I can't stand religious people. And then he was able to cross over that and start witnessing to him, talking about how the religious people are the ones that put Jesus on the cross, which is totally true. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And he was able to lead, lead that man to Christ right then and there. J.D. Greer writes, Believe it or not, Bill Maher, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins, those are three famous atheists, and the Apostle Paul, not an atheist, agree on one thing. Religion can turn you into a really bad person. Get that. These three atheists agree with the Apostle Paul that religion can turn you into a really bad person. Religion caters to the worst parts of us. Pride, self-centeredness, condescension, self-righteousness, and bigotry. Which is why religious people can be, in the words of our generation, the worst. Siren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish philosopher, told a story about a man who dies and goes to hell. He doesn't think he should be there. So he makes an appeal to the apostle Peter, who's standing on the edge of hell. Peter asks him, why do you think you don't belong here? Because I did so many good deeds in my life, said the man. One time I gave a carrot to a poor hungry man. Okay, Peter said, let's see if that's good enough to get you out of hell. And he lowered a carrot over into hell by a fishing line. The man took a hold of the carrot, and lots of other people in hell noticed what was happening and grabbed onto the line as well. The man was afraid the line was going to break. So he started kicking and punching other people, screaming, that's my carrot, that's my carrot. This, Kierkegaard said, is a picture of religion. When you do religious deeds to try to save yourself or exalt yourself, they're actually done from self-interest. Religion done to distinguish ourselves from others or set us apart inevitably leads, to us, leads us to insecurity and cruelty. The gospel teaches the opposite of religion. The gospel teaches that God offers salvation not to those who earn it as a reward, but to those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. We can't boast. We can't brag about our great salvation. Well, actually, we can about our great salvation, but not about what you did to save yourself. None of us can do that. And this is Paul's theme in Galatians as well as Romans. In the rest of the New Testament, actually the whole Bible is about God's grace. The whole Bible is about how we need the grace of God. We can't earn our way to heaven. So my theme today, God's children are children of the free woman. And we're going to find out who that free woman is in just a minute. Unless you read it beforehand. I hope you're at the passage Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Please turn there if you're not there yet. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Galatians is the first of the prison epistles, right after 2 Corinthians. So we're in chapter 4. We're going to be in Galatians for a couple more weeks, then we'll take an Easter break for Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, and then we'll wrap up Galatians. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Let's read 
Paul writes this inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this moved by the Holy Spirit. So I hope we give it extra care and attention knowing this came from the Holy Spirit. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Hagar, slavery to the children, present Jerusalem. Now verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. This passage is contrasting Hagar versus Sarah. If you see in verse 21, he says, You want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is telling these people, these people who are being swayed by the Judaizers, You want to be under the law, don't you even read the law? Don't you even listen to the law? For it is written, Abram had two sons. Who are the two sons? Ishmael and Isaac. He actually had more sons. We'll come back to that. But the son by the bondwoman, that would be the son by Hagar, that would be Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. He was born by their way, not God's way. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And then Paul develops this allegory based off of the text, an allegory. So listen to the Bible. That's my first point today. Listen to the Bible. Listen to it. As I said, verse 21 is about this. Notice Paul switched back to a more accusatory tone. In last week's sermon, we noticed in that passage last week, Paul was in a very loving way, talking extremely nicely to them, very tenderly, very gentle, trying to come back and talk to the Galatians and, and win them over with gentleness. Now Paul switched back to a more accusatory tone. He says they want, he says they want to be under the law, but they don't even listen to the law. Paul used a play on words translated as law. Some of us might hear law, and we think of the red lights of freedom pulling you over for speeding. Hopefully not. Some of you hear law, and you're thinking of the Mosaic law. You're thinking of the Ten Commandments. That's not what Paul's referring to here. Law can also mean the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that's what Paul's referring to here. 
Paul is about to talk about Genesis. He says, you want to be under the law, listen to the law, let me tell you what, what happened in Genesis. I'm going to make an allegory of a story that happened in Genesis. And there are some strong applications from that one sentence. Do you not listen to the law? Do we listen to the Bible? Do we listen to the whole Bible or just the parts we want to? Do we nitpick? Oh, I don't want to listen to that part. I'm going to, I don't agree with that, so I'm going to listen to that. But I want to listen to this part. Children, obey your parents. Yeah, we're listening to that one. But other things, uh, no, we're not going to listen to this part. I'm trying to think of a crazy example here. We do that, don't we? That's postmodernism at its best. It means everyone's an authority. You go to the doctor, you go home. I don't like what the doctor said. I'm going to get on Dr. Google. I'm going to find out my own ideas. Your students, your kid's teacher calls, says your child was misbehaving. No way, not my child. No, it's got to, we take the kid's word over the teacher's, don't we? That's postmodernism at its best. We do the same thing with the Bible. Do we listen to the Bible? Do we listen to the whole Bible? Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is God's inspired word to us. Do we listen to it? You can't listen to it if you don't read it. You can't listen to it if you don't listen during the sermons and Bible studies. You can't listen to it if you don't study it. Do you study it? Do you listen to the Bible? There is something called eisegesis. Let's say it together for fun. Eisegesis. Eisegesis is interpreting a passage to make it say what I want, want it to say. Eisegesis. It's not correct. It means I look at a passage and I want to twist that passage and interpret it to make it say what I want it to say. An example of this happens quite innocently at small groups and Bible studies all the time. You're sitting around a Bible study and you want some discussion. So you say, let's go around the table and say what the passage means to you. No, that's not right. What does that passage mean if you were never even born? That's what's correct. We want to get back to God's original intent of the Bible passage, which is called exegesis. Let's say it, exegesis. Exegesis, exegesis is interpreting a passage the way it was originally written to say. It's getting back to the bottom line root of what the passage was meant to say. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with applying the passage differently. Sometimes the Holy Spirit applies a passage differently for, with me to Timothy to Art to Vicki to Steve to Caleb to different people. That's different. I'm not talking about application. I'm talking about interpretation. We interpret a passage based on how God inspired the authors to write it, not based on what it means to me. Do we listen to the Bible? Do we really study the Bible? In listening to the Bible, we must listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. A few weeks ago, I quoted a poem called Invictus. Invictus. You remember Invictus. At the very end, it says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, in response to Invictus, Dorothy Day wrote a poem. This is not the actress. I think there is an actress named Dorothy Day. This is a different Dorothy Day. Dolores Day. Okay, see? Doris Day, thank you. Now he got your attention. Dorothy Day wrote a poem. Thanks for schooling me on... She made some good movies, though. In response to Invictus, Dorothy Day wrote a poem. It's called My Captain. My Captain. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, 
I thank the God I know to be, for, listen, for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. And that should be something we all can say if we're followers of Jesus. Christ is the master of our fate. Christ is the captain of our soul. Do we listen to the Bible? Now, next we see Isaac versus Ishmael, verses 22 through 23. Let's reread those verses. For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by the bondwoman, that would be um, Hagar, and one by the free woman, that would be Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Ishmael, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Isaac versus Ishmael, a comparing and contrasting of Isaac versus Ishmael. Verse 22, Paul now uses an allegory story. Abram had two sons, one from a slave wife and one from the free wife, one from, one from Hagar and one from Sarah. One, one, one source points out something very interesting. As a matter of fact, Abraham, Abraham had more than two sons. Abraham had eight sons, eight sons actually. He had six sons by Keturah in Genesis 25, 1 through 2. After Sarah had died, he had six more sons by Keturah, whom he married after Sarah's death. Paul did not mention Abraham's latter progeny because they were irrelevant to his present purpose. But getting to the point, the birth of Ishmael was the result of the outworking of the philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. Any of you ever heard that philosophy? It's not for the Bible. It might be Benjamin Franklin. I'm not really sure. Well, but in this case, it's from Abraham and Sarah. God helps those who help themselves. Both Abraham and Sarah were childless in their old age. And it appeared that they would die that way. So they decided to scare quotes, help God fulfill the promise. The result was the birth of Ishmael, who was a source of contention and suffering for the rest of his life. Then, 14 years later, get that, 14 years later, God's promise was at last fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. It took 14 more years for the promise to be fulfilled in Isaac. Wow. And sometimes I get frustrated waiting on God. It took him 14 more years. Isaac was named a name. Isaac means laughter because of the laughter. First of unbelief and then of joy, which greeted his birth. Ishmael was Abraham's son by proxy, according to the flesh. Isaac was his son by promise, a living witness to divine grace. In verse 23, I like how the New Living Translation words it. The New Living Translation says, The son of the slave woman was born from human attempt. The son of Hagar was born from human attempt. They didn't trust God. There are patriarchs for sure, but they didn't trust God. So they used a human means. 
Martin Luther correctly pointed out that actually Ishmael was born without a word from God. Isaac was born with a word from God, a blessing from God. Ishmael was born without a word from God. This verse further says, The son of the free woman was God's way, my translation. Abram and Sarah tried to do things their way rather than trusting God. And I just don't understand. Just because they're 86 and 76 years old, going to have a baby, they think it's okay not to trust God. I mean, people 86 and 76 years old have babies all the time, right? No. Abram would be 100 years old and Sarah would be 90 years old when the baby was eventually born. So maybe we need to... (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we need to give them a little bit of grace. And maybe we need to give them a little bit of grace because oftentimes we do the same thing. Oftentimes we don't listen to the word of God and oftentimes we get impatient and we act rather than waiting on God as well. We don't wait on God. In verses 24 through 31, we see the explanation, this allegory, this allegory. Hagar equals Mount Sinai, which equals the law. And the law enslaved them. The law enslaved them. The Net Bible shares. Paul is not saying that the Old Testament account is an allegory. He's not saying that. But rather that he is constructing an allegory based on the Old Testament. There's a major difference there. The Old Testament account was real, fact, historically accurate. Paul is constructing an allegory based on the account. About allegory, I have one source that shares. In its root meaning... To speak in an allegory means to say something else. To say something else. Allegorical interpretation seeks to discern a hidden meaning in a given story or text. So Paul is pulling out a hidden meaning in this story. A meaning that may be entirely divorced from the historical referent alluded to in the narrative itself. A good example of an allegory in English literature is John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hands. Anybody who's been in Karen's Sunday school class has read it, I believe, because they went through it about a year ago. John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. The famous story is a Christian fantasy that Bunyan said, get this, John Bunyan said, came to him under the similitude of a dream. It's amazing. John Bunyan was in prison twice for six years at a time for preaching without a license in the 1600s. Twice he was thrown in prison for preaching without a license. And while in prison, he writes this great allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. This famous story is a Christian fantasy. And he depicted the various stages of the Christian life through a series of coded characters, events, and places. They had different names like pliable, faithful, hopeful, Giant despair, doubting castle, hill difficulty, city beautiful, and so on. Allegorical exegesis was very common during Paul's day and age, during the Hellenistic period, the Greco-Roman world. So Paul is constructing an allegory based on this account. Jerusalem is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are like Mount Sinai because they are enslaved to the law. Paul says they are enslaved to the law. Verse 26, Sarah is the heavenly Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Because Sarah is the mother of Isaac, who is the child of promise. So she is compared to the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And then he quotes Isaiah 54.1. Isaiah 54.1, which is a prophecy about Gentiles in the covenant. Isaiah 54.1 looks to the millennial reign when the current barren woman of Jerusalem will no longer be barren. This famous passage of Scripture likens the city of Jerusalem to a barren widow sitting at the gates of Jerusalem. She's covered in sackcloth and ashes because her husband has been carried away into captivity. And she has no children to care for her in her old age. In the midst of this desperate situation, the voice of God breaks in. And this is what it says. Be happy, you childless woman. Shout and cry with joy. You who never felt the pains of childbirth. For the woman who was deserted will have more children than the woman whose children never left her. Paul makes that quote. In verse 28, Paul says the Christians are like Isaac. And verse 29 has quite an application. The persecution of Christians by the Judaizers is compared to the persecution of Isaac from Ishmael. Ishmael apparently, apparently had persecuted Isaac to some degree or another. And later on, in Galatians 5.11, we see that the Apostle Paul had been persecuted, which we, of course, knew. The Judaizers, these Jewish Christians who taught that they had to keep the whole law, were persecuting them. And Paul compares that persecution to the persecution of Isaac from Ishmael. The biblical basis of this persecution of Isaac comes from Genesis 21.9. In Genesis 21.9, Sarah saw Ishmael playing with her son Isaac during the festivities surrounding the weaning of the younger boy. The KJV gives a more sinister translation to Ishmael's activity. It says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian mocking, mocking Isaac. Later traditions identified Ishmael's behavior as sexual immorality, the worship of false gods, and murderous sporting activities directed against his brother after the pattern of Cain and Abel. So there was some type of persecution of Isaac. Verse 30 comes from Genesis 21, 10 and 12. And then verse 31, we are free. Christians are children of the free woman. Christians are grafted in to the heritage of Isaac, children of the free woman. I like this illustration that I heard Chuck Swindoll give. Though we're free, we don't always live like we're free, do we? We don't always recognize our freedom in Christ, do we? We still seem to act like we're slaves. A bazaar was held at a village in northern India. Everyone brought his wares to trade and sell. One old farmer brought in a whole covey of quail. He had tied a string around one leg of each bird. The other end of all the strings were tied to a ring which fit loosely over a central stick. He had taught the quail to walk dolefully in a circle around and around like mules at a sugarcane mill. Nobody seemed interested in buying the birds until a devout Brahmin came along. He believed in the Hindu idea of respect for all life. So his heart of compassion went out to those poor little creatures walking in their monotonous circles around and around and around and around. I want to buy them all, he told the merchant, who was elated. After receiving the money, he was surprised to hear the buyer say, Now I want you to set them all free. Set them all free. What's that, sir? said the man. You heard me. 
cut the strings from their legs and turn them loose. Set them all free. With a shrug, the old farmer bit down and snipped the strings off the quail. They were freed at last. What do you think happened? You think they all just flew away? No, they didn't. The birds simply continued marching around and around in a circle. Finally, the man had to shoo them off. But even when they landed some distance away, they resumed their predictable march. Free, unfettered, released, yet they kept going around in circles as if still tied. Swindoll finishes this, finishes this by saying, Until you give yourself permission to be the unique person God made you to be, and do the unpredictable things grace allows you to do, you will be like that covey of quail, marching around in vicious circles of fear, timidity, and boredom. We are children of the free woman. We are grafted in. We are saved by grace. We are free. Let's make some brief applications. In verse 21, Paul asks if they listen to the law. We must listen to God's word. I beat that into you earlier. We must listen to God's word. We must let God bring about his will. In verse 23, Paul refers to Ishmael as the way that Abram and Sarah tried to do God's job. We must trust God. Don't try to do God's job for him. Wait on God. Maybe he's building patience within us. Sometimes as we wait on God. We must not get ahead of God. We must trust the Lord and do what is right. This means that we must be ethical in business practices and moral in everything, in everything. We must have integrity and responsibility even when it does not make sense. I know that is difficult sometimes. It may not make sense to have integrity when everybody else might seem like they're getting ahead by cooking the books or changing the numbers, cheating the numbers. Don't do that. Trust the Lord and do what is right. We must trust and follow God's promises. We must repent. That's a hard word to say sometimes. We must repent where we have not been trusting God. Have we rushed ahead of God like Abraham and Sarah? If so, we need to repent of that. It's hard to repent. No matter what age you are, I think that's difficult. To some degree, I'm guessing that gets easier as you get older. some degree, I don't think so. Because I've been on the raw edge of unrepentance. And the raw edge of myself having to repent too. If you rush ahead of God, we need to repent. We must recognize that these two covenants, they don't fit together. Paul says that we are free. We cannot be free and a slave at the same time. These two covenants do not fit together. And we must respond worshiping God. I read this. I did not write it. This person writes, One of my good friends, Clayton King, has a guy on his pastoral team whose pregnant wife and young child were involved in a terrible accident. An unbelievable accident. An EMT worker fell asleep at the wheel and hit them head on and killed the wife and her unborn child. At the sentencing of the EMT, who was facing felony charges in harsh time, the pastor showed up and pleaded for a more lenient sentence. This man, fall asleep at the wheel, kills this pastor's wife and unborn child. And the pastor shows up at the sentencing and pleads for a more lenient 
lenient sentence. Unbelievable. That gesture began a friendship between the two men that has lasted eight years. They meet every couple of weeks and have become like family. Wow. That's grace, isn't it? I didn't hear the story from Clayton, this man writes. The story was carried on the Today Show. And the pastor was asked why he did such a thing for a man who was responsible for the death of his wife and child. He said simply, this is what Jesus did for me. After I wronged him, he brought me close. It just makes sense that I do this for others. Religion doesn't do that to you. The gospel does. We wronged Jesus and he brought us close. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for our freedom in you. That you died to set us free. You died on the cross on Calvary to set us free. We are free not to sin, but to serve you. We're free to live by the Holy Spirit. We are free to follow the moral law as best we can through the Holy Spirit's work within us. And we do give you praise and glory. Lord God, if there's someone here today, and I know there's probably at least a few, who do not know you as Lord and Savior, may they turn today to you, confessing they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as the only Savior, and committing their life to you and trusting in you. Lord God, if there's several here or some here who need to repent, I ask your Holy Spirit will always be convicting all of us where we need to repent and follow you. And Lord God, I pray that we will listen to your word, accept your grace, and not get ahead of you. May we trust in you, even if it means waiting for, for the fulfillment of a certain promise. May we trust in you. And may we be able to extend grace to others. Lord God, get rid of our hyper, hyper, hypercritical, judgmental attitude of others. And help us to give grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.